Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGenier on Talk Show. It is Friday, August 26, 2011. I have a couple of announcements. First, I, um, well, well, thanks to somebody else that got it started for me, but, but I had to go edit it, but, but that's okay. It, it was half the work it would have been otherwise. Uh, I have a version of the Christogenian New Testament, which is basically the text from the website, and, and it's, it, it's in a format that can be used with a software program called Bible Analyzer. Bible Analyzer is a free software program. There's a link to it right on the front page of Christogenia, or if you go to um, the, the Christogenia New Testament menu at the top right-hand menu and click on Utilities below that, you'll see a, on the Utilities page, you'll see a link to Bible Analyzer. And what, what it does, it's a simple Bible program. It's not real fancy like Bible works. It, it's not even as fancy as eSword, but what it does good and, and cheap because it's free it, is it, it'll make side-by-side Bible versions, and you could actually put the Christogenian New Testament side-by-side with the King James or the ASV or, or whatever other versions that they have available and, and read them side-by-side and, and compare them. So, so we did that. It's, it's, there's, you have to download and install the Bible Analyzer software separately, and then you have to go to Christogenia.org and, and that utilities page, or it's right on the front page for now in the center column, you'll see a link to a Christogenia New Testament file that you could download for free, of course, and, and load into Bible Analyzer, and you could have it parallel with the King James or with the ASV. I, I have it, um, I've actually been using it for programs, and I have it parallel with the ASV and with the King James version, so that I could see all three versions at a glimpse and, and know where my translation differs from those other two. And, and that's just a handy tool, and, and it's free, so you can't beat it, right? I mean, aside from that, there's a page of errata you know, little typos and errors that I found or, or that other people have found for me, and that's more often the case at, for the Christogenian New Testament. And, and the New Testament was just updated about maybe two or three days ago, and, and I repaired all of the typos that I was made or became aware of over the past year. And, and all of the um, the missing verse numbers that I'd been able to locate because I, I, I left out a couple of dozen verse numbers. I, I mean, I'm human, right? Things are going to happen. So, so um, that, that's repaired and updated. And if you order a Christianity Testament, you'll get the new version. For the people that have the old version, I, I apologize. I mean, I can't help typographical errors. And, and you can print the errata page at Christogenia.org. And, and find and correct the, the errors in your version. It's not really too many, but there are some typos, right? They can't be helped. There are other books from Christogenia coming forth soon. I'm going to make a diligent effort. I have enough material for, for um, four or five books just laying around that, that I, I'd long been planning to put into book form. And since, I, since I've been 
out here in the real world on the Internet the last three years. I, I really haven't taken the time. I, I've been spending most of my time producing programs and, and working on the technical aspects of my websites, and I'm going to make a concerted effort, Yahweh willing, these, these next couple of months to get at least two or three uh, books of my papers available on, on Lulu.com. And, and they'll all be soft cover, and they won't be expensive. That, that's all I can promise. That they won't, they'll be, you know, under $20 and soft cover editions, nothing real fancy, just simple. I still have a couple of volumes of translation notes, and that's a major project. And, and that's really gonna have to wait until I have a couple of months to, to get them together because they need to be updated and, and reformatted. And that's beyond my control. It's the way they were typed when, when they were first typed several years ago on a much older computer system that, that is not portable from one system to another. And, and that's a problem, and it's a problem with making the books available also on Lulu. So, so that project it is my biggest project, and it's just going to have to wait until I have the time that I could take to do it. And, and Yahweh willing, hopefully that will be within the next couple of years, but I can't make any promises. Okay, this is um, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is really, it, it's Christ is really talking about the same things that he was talking about in Matthew 24. It hasn't changed. The subject is the same. He's still answering the same three questions. We will see that. And, and um, this may as well be called Matthew chapter 24, part three. Last week we covered Matthew chapter 24, um, in, in, well, in a week before, in two parts. And the scriptures which discuss the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which refers to several prophecies in Daniel chapters 11 and 12. We saw that the term reads, abomination which maketh desolate in some manuscripts in some places in Daniel. The periods of time in prophetic days given by Daniel for the abomination of desolation and, and it's tied to several time periods counted in prophetic days, or, or what we interpret as, you know, a prophetic day being a year. That these periods of days may be interpreted so that the abomination of desolation may be tied to both Mohammedism and to Judaism, and, and specifically to Zionist Judaism. Mohammedism and Judaism are both, I believe, satanic religions devised by the Jews who have absconded the Old Testament and have abused the oracles of God for their own purposes. Last week, we also discussed at length the prophecy by Christ concerning, I mean, among many other things, right? We discussed the prophecy by Christ concerning the budding of the fig tree when it shoots forth its branches and how that must have referred to that fig tree that was cursed by Christ. Let us read the parable of the fig tree, which is separate from the cursing, right? From Luke chapter 13, from verse 6. Then he spoke this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit in it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, it is three years from which I have come seeking fruit from this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, for why should the land be useless? 
And let me say that we could count the Passovers in John. And, and it's very likely, it, it's extremely likely, that the ministry of Christ, from the time that he was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, which had to be the fall of 28 A.D., was three and a half years. And this parable is telling us about a three-year period in which Christ came to Jerusalem seeking fruit from the fig tree, the, the allegorical fig tree, and finds none. So he tells his fine dresser, cut it down, for why should the land be useless? But answering, he, the vine dresser, says to him, Master, leave it this year also, until when I should dig around it and cast manure, and so then it may produce fruit in the future, but otherwise, if not, you shall cut it down. In other words, the vine dresser wants to try this one more year, the last year of Christ's ministry. Jerusalem produced no fruit for Christ in his final year either. So the fig tree that was Jerusalem was indeed cut down. And from that time on, we cannot imagine, under any circumstances, that there have ever been any good figs or any good things coming from Jerusalem or from the descendants of those people. So what Christ says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 34. Now learn from the parable of the fig tree. What already its branches should be tender. And it would produce leaves. Notice how he doesn't say it would produce fruit. He said it would produce leaves, right? You know that summer is near. Thus we also you, when you should see all these things, know that it is near by the doors. Truly I say to you that by no means should this race escape until all these things should happen. Today, the Jews are indeed producing leaves, and their branches have extended to control all the earth. So we know that the harvest approaches. In Matthew chapter 24, we saw a single discourse by Christ which answered, which answered three questions which I shall repeat here, because here in Matthew chapter 25, he is still addressing those questions in the three parables which make up this entire chapter, which we are about to cover. The questions posed to him by the apostles were these. Tell us, when shall these things be, in reference to his statements concerning the destruction of Jerusalem? What is the sign of your coming? in reference to the ultimate return of the Christ and of the consummation of the age, which is in reference to Christ's many statements, which mentioned the end of the age. In Matthew 24, we saw that some of Christ's discourse did apply specifically to first century Judea. This was especially evident as it was exposited from a harmony of the prophecies of Christ here, as they were also recorded in Luke and in Mark. Yet, much of his discourse, as it was recorded in Matthew 24, in Mark chapter 13, and in Luke chapter 21, much of his discourse still awaits fulfillment, since it does not describe any of the circumstances which occurred in the first century at the destruction of old Jerusalem. Nor have they been fulfilled to this day. So the three parables which we are about to discuss 
which are indeed a continuation of his answer to those questions regarding the time of the end and his coming, these three parables are especially pertinent to us now and in the days which lie ahead. Matthew chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of the heavens shall be like ten virgins, who, taking their own lamps, went out for a meeting with the bridegroom. Now five of them were fools, and five were wise. For the fools, taking their lamps, did not take for themselves oil. But the wise took oil in the vessels with their lamps. And with the bridegroom delaying, they had all gotten drowsy and slept. Then there came a cry at midnight, Behold the bridegroom, come for a meeting with him. Then all those virgins arose and prepared their own lamps. And the fool said to, be, to the wise, Give to us some of your oil, because our lamps are extinguished. But the wise replied, saying, Never. By no means would it be sufficient for us and for you would there be enough. Rather, you must go to the dealers and buy it for yourselves. But upon their having departed to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready entered in with him into the wedding feast and shut the door. Then later, the rest of the virgins also came, saying, Master, Master, open for us. But responding, he said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, you must be alert, because you know not the day nor the hour. While this parable is certainly foreboding for those who should not seek and follow the will of Yahweh God, it must first be said that this can have nothing to do with the ultimate salvation of the spirits of those who are of the race of Israel, and who were found to be unprepared. Isaiah was not a liar when he said that. In Yahweh, all the seed, or all of the offspring, of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Isaiah 45.25 and Paul was not lying when he said that all Israel shall be delivered, Romans 11.26. And Christ was not lying when he said that every error in blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be remitted or forgiven. Interpretation of this parable cannot nullify those other scriptures. And that should be a precept followed when interpreting all the parables. We cannot justly interpret a parable in a manner which nullifies any of the plain statements of God made in other scriptures. When an interpretation of a parable nullifies statements made by the prophets or in the Gospels or even in the epistles of the apostles, then the interpretation of the meaning of the parable is flawed. Paul, in his epistle instructing the Corinthians, concerning what to do with a certain sinner, told them at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, to deliver such a wretch to the adversary, 
for destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the prince, in the day of the Lord. So we see that there is a punishment in this life when we do wrong, yet we still have that hope of forgiveness and salvation after this life. Many scriptures can be employed to elucidate this, and the two ideas should not be confused. The same way in which Paul explained the fate of the sinner in 1 Corinthians is the way that I would interpret the fate of the five foolish virgins of this parable. In agreement with this is the exclamation, which we find in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, concerning the fall of Mystery Babylon. You come out from her, my people, that you should not partake in her errors, and that you would not receive from of her wounds. In other words, if you don't come out from Babylon, you're going to suffer along with it. The marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19 is an allegory representing the destruction of all of the enemies of God and everyone not written into the book of life. Verse 9 of the chapter, Revelation 19, explains, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is that call? That answer is found in Micah. One place that answer is found is in Micah chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Talking about people that descended from the original Israelites. Like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field. And thou shalt go even to Babylon. We are in Babylon now. There thou shalt be delivered. There Yahweh shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. That's where we are right now. Now also many nations are gathered against thee, Micah 4.11, that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. This describes the same scenario which we see in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and also mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, Satan deceives the nations to go up against the camp of the saints, right? Micah 4.12 But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. There is the call to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For I, meaning God, will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. That is the call to the invitation 
to the wedding feast of the Lamb, where all the enemies of our God are destroyed. Those of us who understand the problems of this world, to one degree or another, and who long for Yahweh's justice, will wait upon Christ and will hear that call when it comes. Those of us who are partying with the devil, who ignore the warnings and admonition to come out from Mystery Babylon, will suffer its punishments. The virgins who didn't have oil, they were off in the markets trying to buy oil. They knew the call was coming. All of our people know the call is coming. But they were busy in the markets when the call came. They were engaged with Mystery Babylon. So they didn't hear the call. And when they realized what was going on, it was too late. It's going to be too late for many of our people. They're going to suffer with the fall of the beast and the extermination of the enemies of God because when that call comes, they will be found engaged with the enemies of God. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1. I'm sorry, I missed a short paragraph. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy concerning the coming and the sacrifice of the Messiah, Yahshua Christ. Isaiah chapters 51 and 52 are a prophecy of the awakening which the people of God, true Saxon Israel, shall undergo at the fall of Mystery Babylon. This awakening has nothing to do with the ancient fall of Babylon to the Persians. This awakening did not happen in the first century of the destruction of Jerusalem, and it hasn't happened since. We must therefore anticipate it in the future. Here I will quote parts of those chapters. and In fact, I believe I'm quoting the entire two chapters, Isaiah 51 and 52, in order to demonstrate the veracity of the statement. Isaiah chapter 51. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness. Ye that seek Yahweh, look into the rock. Whence ye are hewn. And to the hole of the pit, whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and Sarah to bear you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. Among all of the sects claiming to be Christians, only Christian identity does this. Verse 3. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion, the people, not the hellhole in Palestine. He will comfort all of her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. And joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. Language, which Luke's gospel later invokes. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people, the isles wait upon me. All of this is talking of Christ, and all of these things were said later of Christ. 
And on mine arm shall, shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heaven shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my, sal- my salvation, which is promised only to Israel, so everyone else dies in like manner. My salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. This language was later invoked by both Peter and Paul in their epistles, and both were referring to the second advent at the end of the age. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, as Paul informed the Romans, something we shall discuss when we get to the third parable in this chapter. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. Real Christians, Christian identity, we endure this today, the same situation. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever in my salvation from generation to generation. Awake, 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 awake. There's our awakening. I mean, that's the second time. Put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the ancient days. We will come to awakeness that we are those people of the ancient days. In the generations of old, art thou not that it hath cut Rahab, I'm sorry, that language is a little difficult. And wounded the dragon. Art thou not it? Art thou not you that has cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? This is a reading of Psalm. A reading of Psalm 87 at this point is appropriate. But for now, I will only cite the first verse of the 87th Psalm, which will suffice, where it says, quote, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me, unquote. Isaiah 51.10, art thou, are you not, he which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, and has made the depths of the sea away for the ransomed to pass over. And yes, the children of Israel passed over the great seas. Therefore, the redeemed of Yahweh shall return, which is the genetic children of Israel only, and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou should be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? We should not fear any other person. We should only fear God. 13. And forgets the Yahweh thy maker, who has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and has seared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit nor that his bread should fail. But I am Yahweh thy God that divides the sea, whose waves roar. 
Yahweh of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in thy mouth. And I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand. That I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. And say unto Zion, thou art my people. These are allegories for the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. Which has drunk, and these verses which come up are very, which are coming up are very important. Which has drunk at the hand of Yahweh the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. This is language very similar to Revelation chapter 16, which builds up to the fall of Mystery Babylon in chapter 18, right? And in Revelation chapter 16, it says, And the great city broke into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And the great Babylon had been remembered before Yahweh to give to her the cup of the wine of his wrath of anger. That's what we find here in Isaiah. By this we know that Isaiah is prophesying of that, prophesying of that same thing. That's when the awakening of our people comes. Verse 18. There is none to guide them, none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for her? Desolation and destruction and famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons are sainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. As a wild bull in a net, they are full of the fury of Yahweh, the rebuke of thy God. Here we stand today. The things our race suffers today are clearly a chastisement from God for our disobedience. Isaiah 51:21. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. Thus saith Yahweh, the Lord, and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee which have said to thy soul, bow down that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. All of the non-Israelite peoples of the world who are now trying to destroy the people of God. They are walking all over us, literally. In the end, they shall indeed be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 52. Awake, awake. There we have it again, four times. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city. The real Jerusalem are the people of God, right? Not the city in Palestine. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. 
Shake thyself from the dust. Remember, we're the circumcised in heart. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And we are slaves today. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Indeed, we were. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. That's our first captivity. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. That refers to our second captivity in Isaiah's own time. Now, therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith Yahweh, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. Of course, this is talking of Christ. But this prophecy is also but one reason why I have chosen to employ the Old Testament name Yahweh in my own translations. To assert the claim of our Saxon people to our heritage. And to be the fulfillment of these words. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together they shall sing, for they shall see eye to eye when Yahweh shall bring them again to Zion. They shall all agree. Something that we have not done since the gospel was first published. Verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The people, not the place. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see, that don't mean they shall have, they shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. This is the same call to get out of Babylon. Touch no unclean thing, go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Touch no unclean thing. Thing was added to the text. It's touch not the unclean, meaning the other people. Ye that bear the vessels of Yahweh are those children of Jacob who carry the spirits which Yahweh imparted to our father Adam. Depart from out of mystery Babylon, the mixed race society. Those who do not, those five virgins caught in the market, those who do not will suffer its punishments. Every Israelite knows, or has been told, has had the opportunity to know that he is coming. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. 
when the time comes, we will be successful. There is no doubt. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told to them shall they see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. We as Christians must anticipate this very day. Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapters 51 and 52 clearly inform us that there shall be an awakening of the people, of our people, at the fall of Mystery Babylon. This has to happen. It is at this time that we shall hear the cry, Arise and flesh, O daughter of Zion. The parable of the ten virgins informs us that some of us won't hear that call. And those who do not will suffer the punishments inflicted upon the enemies of God. They will be treated at that time no better than the beasts. But their spirits will survive. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is, meaning the kingdom of heaven, that he's um, still explaining. For it is just like a man traveling abroad, who called his own slaves and turned over to them his properties. And while to one he had given five talents, let me say a talent was a sum of money in the ancient world that was very considerable. And to another two, and to another one to each according to his own ability. Then he went abroad. Immediately going, he receiving the five talents, conducted business with them and profited five others. Likewise, he with the two talents profited two others. But he receiving the one, having departed, dug into the ground and hid the silver of his master. A talent in the ancient world, was about 60 pounds of silver. In the Roman world, it was just a very large coin. Then, after much time, the master of those slaves comes and takes an account together with them. And he, receiving the five talents, coming forth, presented five other talents, saying, Master, you turned over to me five talents. Behold, I have profited another five talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. With a little you were faithful. I shall appoint you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Coming forth also, he with the two talents said, Master, you turned over to me two talents. Behold, I have profited another two talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. With a little you were faithful. I shall appoint you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then coming forth, he also, who received the one talent, said, Master, I know you, that you are a hard man, reaping from where you have not sown and gathering from where you have not scattered. And being in fear, having departed, I hid your talent 
in the earth, behold, that which is yours, returning to him his one talent. But replying, his master said to him, wicked and timid slave, you knew that I reap from where I have not sown, and I gather from where I have not scattered. Therefore, it was necessary for you to deposit my silver with the bankers, and coming, I would have received that which is mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him having the ten talents. For to each having, it shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But to he not having, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. And the useless slave shall be cast into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Note that these servants, as the King James translates the word, are slaves and not children. It is clear from other statements of Christ that not all those who claim to be serving him are recognized by him. The Greek word used here is doulos, which is a bondman or an involuntary servant, a slave, and not diakonis, which is a minister or a servant who is not a slave, although both words do appear frequently as servant frequently in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, in the New Testament. This particular slave went so far as to question even the motives of his master. That sounds like most of the so-called servants of God today who question the very gospel and twist it into a mass of confusion. To he not having, even that which he has shall be taken away from him, because he probably never deserved it in the first place. Yahweh has warned us in the curses of disobedience that strangers would rule over us for our disobedience. And we see that in the pulpits and in the halls of academia, as well as in the political and civil civil realms. We see that all over the place today. As a side note, many have read this parable as an endorsement of usury on the part of Christ. But Christ is not directly advocating usury here. Rather, Christ is speaking in the cultural context of the time. This is a parable, meaning it's an allegory. And it is the least a master could expect a servant to do with what money has been committed to him for stewardship at this time. If the servant could not make a viable enterprise of what he had been given, he could at least stand aside and lend it to those who were more able to do so. Of course, the parable is an allegory, but Yahweh does not condone usury. Simple-minded men look to make accusations from the Bible, and with that, they miss many important lessons that it contains. I'm going to read a few passages about usury. Jeremiah 15.10, Woe is me, my mother! Thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury, nor have men lent to me on usury, yet every one of them does curse me. Ezekiel 22.12, what what Jeremiah is saying that he can't understand why everybody's cursing him because he's never loaned 
to any of them on usury or defaulted on any loans that he received on usury. It was considered a curse in the Old Kingdom. Ezekiel 22.12 In thee they have taken gifts to shed blood, talking about Jerusalem. Thou hast taken usury and increase, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion, and hast forgotten me, says Yahweh God. Nehemiah 5.7 Because Yahweh does not change. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, you exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them, because they were taking usury of their brethren. Psalm 15.5 He that puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, he that does these things shall never be moved. So we never loan out money to usury to our brethren. And we also shouldn't borrow it at usury. This bristles a lot of people today because we are so programmed by the Jew to accept interest rates and loans at usury. Deuteronomy 23.20 Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that Yahweh thy thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to do in the land where you go to possess it. In the Bible, four times prior to the aforementioned verse from Deuteronomy, where the children of Israel commanded never to loan money to their brethren with usury or interest. They were permitted to loan money to non-Israelites at usury, and if they did not, the non-Israelites would take great advantage of them. Yet usury without distinction was commonplace in Greece and Rome. This parable is an example of Christ speaking to us on our own terms and not on his terms. Usury is still evil. And Christ does that often. He's speaking to these people in the Greco-Roman era on their own terms. He makes a parable that they could understand on their own terms. He's not condoning usury. The children of Israel were told never to loan at usury to each other, but only to strangers. And that should stand today. A sign of our punishment is, once again, that today we have all sorts of government programs which grant low-interest loans to aliens. And we ourselves shoulder the burden. Or even worse, often we cannot even get such loans in our own nation. One more thing about the parable of the wicked servant, and we'll talk about it again later. Note that the wicked servant is not an unbeliever. Neither was he accused of sin as a violation of the law. Neither did he violate the law. That is because faith and Allah are only for the children of Israel. Yet the servant is cast outside. The third and final parable in this chapter offers us insight into the possible reasons behind that. Matthew 25, verse 31. And when the Son of Man should come in his effulgence, and all the messengers with him, then he shall sit upon his throne of honor, and they shall gather before him all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he shall indeed stand the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left hand. Then the king shall say to those at his right hand, Come, those blessed of my father. You shall inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of society, or the world, if you will. For I hungered, and you gave me to eat. I had thirst, and you had given me to drink. I was a visitor, and you had taken me in. Naked, and you had clothed me. I have been sick, and you watched over me. I was in prison, and you had come to me. Then the righteous shall respond to him, saying, Master, when have we seen you hungry and nourished you, or thirsting and had given you drink? And when have we seen you, a visitor, and had taken you in, or naked, and had clothed you? And when have we seen you being sick or in prison, and had come to you? And replying, the king shall say to them, Truly I say to you, and this is important, this line is the key to this parable. Truly I say to you, for whomever of the least of my brethren have you done one of these things, you have done them for me. Verse 41. Then he shall say also to those at the left hand, Go from me, accursed, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the false accuser and his messengers, or for the devil and his angels. For I hungered, and you did not give me to eat, and I had thirst, and you had not given me drink. I was a visitor, and you had not taken me in, naked, and you had not clothed me, sick and in prison, and you had not visited me. Then they themselves shall also respond, saying, Master, when have we seen you hungry or thirsting, or a visitor, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and had not served you? Then he shall respond to them, saying, Truly I say to you, for whomever you had not done one of the least of these things, neither have you done them for me. And they shall go off into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Before we attempt to interpret this parable, let's look at a very similar parable from the Old Testament, which is found in Ezekiel chapter 34, and I will read it here in its entirety. Ezekiel 34, 1. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Remember the unrighteous, the, the unrighteous slave, right? Prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Perhaps this describes those shepherds who are like the slave in the previous parable, who did not build the house of his master. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, and you clothe yourself with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased you have not strengthened. Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. This language can only describe already deported Israel 
who were ruled over by the bad things of Judah for quite some time. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, saith Yahweh God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became me to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. The situation with the shepherds describes the state of both politics and religion today quite perfectly. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. This statement alone destroys the concept of replacement theology, which is taught in today's churches. A concept which is absolutely contrary to the Bible. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. There is never any word of replacing the flock with some other people. And I will bring them out from the people. I will bring them out from the people. Come out from among them. Do not touch the unclean. Only Israel is clean because only Israel was cleansed on the cross by Yahweh. And the gospel was only for the dispersion of Israel. As Yahweh told Peter in Acts chapter 10, do not call common what I have cleansed. Yahweh only cleansed the children of Israel. That is a matter of many prophecies. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. This is exactly the history of true Israel, where after the deportations, Israel, as well as most of the real Judah, were resettled among the other Adamic peoples and they departed from there and went to their own lands the barren lands of Northern Europe. And now, once again, they are in the predicament of dwelling among many strangers. Verse 14. And I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. This describes the true Saxon Israelites and never the Jews. I will seek that which was lost 
and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. Verse 17. And now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats, the sheep and the goats. Note that the rams and the goats never change sides. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures. But must you tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures? That's a question. And to have drunk of the deep waters, but must you foul the residue with your feet? Of course, he's still addressing the shepherds. And as for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God unto them, this discourse is still against the shepherds. The shepherds are, the, are both the political and religious leaders of the nation, not just pastors. Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because you have thrust with side and shoulder and pushed all the disease with your horns. That describes only the children of Israel. Till you have scattered them abroad, therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. Race is the dividing point here. Period. Verse 23. And I will shepherd over them, and he shall, and I will set up one shepherd over them, Christ, and he shall feed them, even my servant David, who is an allegory for Christ. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. And they, Israel, shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill, meaning the people of Israel, a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in its season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of field, the tree of the field shall yield her fruit. And the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am Yahweh, when I have broken the bands of their yoke, and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them, meaning all the other races who are serving themselves of us now, especially the Edomite Jews, but all the other races are doing that today and had been for quite some time. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, 
neither bear the shame of the heathen anymore. Thus shall they know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, which has to include the real house of Judah, are my people, saith Yahweh God, and you my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, meaning Adam kind, and I am your God, saith Yahweh God. The flock never changes. It always has been and it always will be the genetic children of Israel who were departed, which includes Judah, who were departed from or were driven off from the face of Yahweh their God, beginning with the captivity in Egypt circa 1500 B.C., because many Israelites left the main body of Israel at that time and later, up through the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the Israelites of the Old Kingdom, circa 741 to 585 B.C. Once we learn that the judgments of God are favor and mercy for the flock, and that the judgments of God are vengeance towards all those who are not of the flock, only then can we correctly interpret the parables and the other statements of Christ in the New Testament. Now we shall review this parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew once again. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. And when the Son of Man should come in his effulgence, and all the messengers or angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his honor. Upon his coming, he has promised to gather all of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, without exception. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 25 and 26. But thus saith Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contends with thee, meaning Israel, and I will save thy children, all the children of Israel, and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, are your Savior, meaning Israel's Savior, and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There are many such promises, Old and New Testament. And now, once do they make a distinction, which would believe us, which would lead us to believe that salvation is for only a portion of the children of Israel, or that any of the children of Israel, or, or that any of the children of Israel would be excluded. To the contrary, Yahweh has promised to cleanse all of our sins and to forget and forgive all of our iniquity. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 18, So then, as that one transgression, meaning the transgression of Adam, is for all men a sentence of condemnation, which is death in this life, in this manner, then through one decision of judgment by Christ, for all men is for a judgment of life meaning all of Adam. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one, 
the many were set down as wrongdoers, and we have all been sinners. In this manner, then, through the obedience of one, meaning Christ, the many, without exception, will be established as righteousness, as righteous. Where Paul says one decision of judgment, we see that all of the Adamic race is accepted. All of the Adamic race is restored. Or all of the race is rejected. There's only one decision of judgment. There is not a decision by Christ for each individual Adamite. But one single decision for our entire race. The only thing that may prevent one from receiving that judgment of life is if one is not a sheep, since it was only ever promised to the sheep. Therefore, Paul says in Hebrews 12.8 that one is either a son or a bastard, a person of mixed race, and there is no third choice. You're a sheep or you're a goat. Matthew 25.32 And they shall gather before him all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It is nations or ethnicities which are sheep and nations or ethnicities which are goats. This is the line upon which judgment is based. The nations are distinguished by the shepherd on sight, just like sheep are distinguishable from goats on sight. Verse 33. And he shall indeed stand the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left hand. There are no bad sheep, and there are no good goats. All of the sheep nations go to the right, and all of the goat nations go to the left. And once the sorting is done, there are none remaining who are not either on the right or on the left. Verse 34. Then the king shall say to those at his right hand, Come, those blessed of my father, you shall inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of society. For I hungered, and you gave me to eat. I had thirst, and you had given me drink. I was a visitor, and you had taken me in. Naked, and you had clothed me. I had been sick, and you watched over me. I was in prison, and you had come to me. Then the righteous shall respond to him, saying, Master, when have we seen you hungry and nourished you, or thirsting and had given you drink? And when have we seen you a visitor and had taken you in, or naked and had clothed you? And when have we seen you being sick or in prison and had come to you? And replying, the king shall say to them, Truly I say to you, for whomever, of the least of my brethren, have you done one of these things? You have done them for me. The acts of kindness, which Yahshua describes here, are allegories describing a society built on goodwill and the rule of law. Only white men have ever created such societies, where the other races have shadows of them, they received them from the establishments of white men, for good or for bad. 
whether it be in Africa, in South America, or in Asia. When the white man leads, the non-white societies immediately begin to decay. Paul commended the Romans, who had indeed descended from the Israelites of antiquity, in the following manner in Romans chapter 2. And I'll quote from verse 14. For when the nations, which do not have the law, by nature practice the things of the law, these, not having a law, themselves are a law, who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts. That's important. Bearing witness with their conscience and between one another, considering accusations or then defending the accused in a day when Yahweh will judge the secrets of men according to my good message through Yahshua Christ. Of course, Paul can only be talking about the nations of dispersed Israel since God only promised to write his law, which only Israel ever had, upon the hearts of those children of dispersed Israel. He never promised to write it upon the hearts of anyone else. In fact, the scripture says that nobody else has his law except the children of Israel. Isaiah 51.7 talks about Israel and addresses them as the people in whose heart is my law. This is part of the new covenant promise where we see it, Jeremiah 31.33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that, of course, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one includes the house of Judah. Yahweh is only the God of Israel, and only Israel has those laws written in their hearts. Paul commends the Romans. The Romans are a part of dispersed Israel and have displayed the workings of the law written in their hearts because the Romans did, even though it wasn't the perfect law of God, the Romans did establish a society based on the ideas of justice and the rule of law. Now note that Yahshua says that for whomever of the least of my brethren have you done one of these things, you have done them for me. In other words, the people of Israel, being the only ones who could ever qualify as the brethren of Christ, because the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 14.1, are the only people in the Old Testament Yahweh ever admitted as his children. Amos 3.2, the children of Israel, are the only family that he knew in all the earth. Period. Only they could qualify as the being the brethren of Christ. So the sheep, the sheep are not judged for how they treated the goats. Rather, the sheep are only judged for how they treated themselves, the other sheep, their kindred, the brethren of Christ. That's how the sheep were judged. That is why the sheep were commended. How they treated the goats is immaterial. Then he shall say to those also at the left hand, Go from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the false accuser and his messengers. I try, try to translate those terms literally, the King James has, and not wrongly, 
for the devil and his angels. For I hungered, and you did not give me to eat, and I had thirst, and you would not give me drink. I was a visitor, and you had not taken me in naked, and you would not clothe me sick and in prison, and you had not visited me. Then they themselves shall also respond, saying, Master, when have we seen you? The devils know there is one God, right? Master, when have we seen you hungry or thirsting or a visitor or naked or sick or in prison and have not served you? Then he shall respond to them, saying, Truly I say to you, for whomever you had not done one of the least of these things, neither have you done them for me. The non-sheep nations despise the sheep nations. It's a fact of life and history. It's all around us. The non-sheep nations, the goat nations, all the mixed races of the world, that's why they're goats, they despise us. And they are here, as we saw in Isaiah and in the Revelation. They're here to feed themselves off of us. They're here to get their fill from us. That's what they are doing right now. The goat nations, all the bastards and the non-Israelite races, have the same fate as the devil and his angels. I would imagine that this is because their origin really is found with the devil and his angels. That's why they have the same fate. They have the same destiny because they had the same origin. They have fed themselves and they have enriched themselves at the expense of the sheep, as we saw above discussing the parable of the ten virgins in Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapters 51 and 52. We read at Micah 4.11, and I quote, Now also many nations are gathered against thee, that say, let her be defiled. Multiculturalism being forced upon the white nations of the world today. And let our eye, meaning those people of the other races, look upon Zion because they want our booty and our women and whatever else they can get. As it was noted earlier discussing Isaiah, Chapter 51, I will quote verse 22. Thus saith Yahweh God, and thy God that pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, the cup which we hold now, the goats will hold soon, which have said to thy soul, bow down that we may go over, and thou, meaning us, has laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. In other words, they walk all over us. That's very plain. It's all around us. This describes all of the aliens and beasts in our land today, and it describes their attitudes towards us. All of the non-Israelite peoples of the world who are now attempting to consume and to destroy the people of God, in the end, they shall indeed be destroyed. They are all goats, 
and none of them can ever be sheep. And the gospel of God offers no third choice for any of them. Think about all of these things. When you read the news reports about the Negro violence and the flash mobs, which are now commonly occurring, or when you hear about the Mexican demonstrations in California organized by La Raza and other mestizo supremacist racist groups, or when you hear about the recent Tottenham riots, and the destruction of several neighborhoods in London at the hands of the Negroes. Today, they say to us, bow down that we may go over, but tomorrow they will get just what it is that they are due, and they will get it at the hands of our God. This is exactly what is happening today. Just as these biblical prophecies told us would happen in these days. And we all see, and we see that all the distinctions made by God are racial distinctions. And that's where the lines are drawn. For those of us who do not awaken to these things, for those of us who do not hear the call, they shall suffer with the others. For those wicked servants who, as we saw in the parable of the wicked servant, question the motives of Yahweh our God, they too will receive their reward in the lake of fire. It is not a coincidence that these parables are presented in this manner. These three parables of Matthew chapter 25 are indeed connected in ways that many people will never understand. Okay, I will be here tomorrow night. Talk to Christiania Saturdays, and I will be presenting my paper, Broken Cisterns. That should be interesting. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Good night.